Thanks for joining us on Fresh Faith. We're excited to bring you a special season of the podcast. Ron and former Pittsburgh Steeler Tunch Ogan have worked alongside one another for years. You may remember Tunch on some previous episodes of the podcast. A while back, they teamed up to do a special series on the Journey Radio called Biblical Manhood. This series has been one of the most well-received series, and so we knew we just had to bring it to you on the podcast. In today's gender-confused culture, how can men recapture their God-designed roles and purpose? What does a man made in God's image look like, and how does he act? These are questions that Ron and Tunch are going to embark on as they start this quest to rediscover biblical manhood. We're going to be doing something just a little bit different. We're going to be focusing on the issues that men face. And to help us understand the day-to-day challenges that face men, I have a special guest with me. And I want to welcome Tunch Ilkin to the journey. Great to be with you, Ron. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Tunch Tunch is a former professional football player. He was 13 seasons with the Steelers and one season with the Packers. Right, is that I right? Had a, I had a brat with the, you know, some people have a, a cup of coffee with me. <laughs> I had a brat with the Packers. <laughs> one, one stint with the Packers. Tunch was a co-captain of the Steelers, a player's rep, a vice president of the NFL Players Association. That was a pretty good gig. Well, you didn't get paid for it, but you know what, what made that good? No, seriously, though, Ron, what made that cool is the era of free agency. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of serving on the executive committee when we hammered that new agreement on when football went from the old CBA of no free agency to what's going on with players today. So okay. I remind the guys all the time that the reason they're making this money. <laughs> <laughs> you made it happen uh, for yeah, Well, I was one of the guys. <laughs> Tunch also does uh, caller commentary for the Steeler broadcast team, so that makes him a professional (laughs) communicator. (laughs) Semi-professional. For the last 10 years, Tunch has led the men's ministry at the Bible Chapel in Pittsburgh. And again, Tunch, I want to thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. Okay, so Journey goes around the country, and to help us connect with the different cities, let's do a little uh, football connection here. I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. You are an offensive tackle. Right. You went against some of the toughest defensive players in the country. Right, right. So I'm going to name a team. Okay. And you tell me the toughest defensive player that you ever went against on that team. All right. Okay, I'm ready. Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, that's easy. Reggie White, your basic genetic mutation. Arms like legs, legs like people. (laughs) All right. Reggie White, Philadelphia. Detroit Lions. Uh, Al Bubba Baker, great pass rusher. Had these arms, man. He could probably give you a wedgie from across the hall. <laughs> Al Bubba Baker. I Al can't, Bubba Baker. I yeah. don't know that I ever heard that yeah. name. All right. Good guy. All right. All right. Washington Redskins. Charles Mann, another great defensive end. Okay. Great uh, pass rusher. Good guy. Also in broadcasting, by the way. And you handled every one of these. Uh, I don't know that I handled them. I battled. <laughs> I showed up. <laughs> Denver Broncos. Carl Mecklenburg, uh, great outside linebacker. And uh, Broncos did some really unique things with Carl. They uh, moved him around to different positions, so you could never count on where he was. As a matter of fact, when we used to play the Broncos, we had what we called the Mecklenburg protection. Okay. So no matter where he was, he belonged to one of the offensive linemen. For everybody listening in Kansas City, mm-hmm. Kansas City Chiefs, toughest right. defensive player. I'm going to say Art Still. Art Still was a perennial Pro Bowl defensive end, great player, really good guy as well. St. Louis Rams. St. Louis Rams. Or were they called the Cardinals? Uh, back when, uh, if you want me to go to the L.A. Rams, uh, <laughs> that was Jack Youngblood, was the toughest guy I won against the okay. L.A. Rams. If you want to go the the St. Louis 
Cardinals, that would have to probably be Conrad Dolmar. Uh, huh. Anybody that, uh, if you stick your finger in their face mask, he'd bite your finger off. Man, that's a tough that's guy a tough as far guy. as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay, one more. How about the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, that's an easy no-brainer. Ed Tutal-Jones. All uh, right. Another guy, 6'9". You know, one of the things I always wanted to do is I wanted to make sure I was on the line of scrimmage real quick and in my stance so he didn't realize how short I was. And he had a great career as a boxer yeah, yeah. for that uh, one for or two one years. Fight, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was a great career, but uh, he, he had he a did, stint. He did box. <laughs> okay, so, Tunch, you've been around tough guys all your life, in the locker room, on the field, and now you are ministering to men every day. Right. As you interact with men, not only here in the Pittsburgh area, but around the country, right. what are the main things that you see face men today and challenge men? I guess the first thing that I would say, Ron, is men tend to be loners, and they don't realize how important it is for men to get together and lock arms. The first time I heard that phrase, it was Stu Weber wrote a book called Locking Arms, Mm -hmm. and he was talking about men's relationships and how important it is for us as men to encourage and challenge one another to really live hard for Christ. I think when men isolate themselves they're easy prey. And you know as well as I have, I've heard you preach on it, that self-counsel is no counsel at all. Hmm. And so when a guy starts relying on his own judgment without the help of other men, rationalization's too easy. I can rationalize anything. When I first started as director of men's ministry here at the chapel, I wanted to go after guys that I did not see around. Mm-hmm. The thing about church is it appeals to the families and it appeals to the women But in many ways, it does not appeal to men. You know, even when I was a young believer, I remember whenever I came to the church, when it wasn't Sunday, I felt like, ooh, I'm in church, and there's really no reason to be here. There was a little Mm -hmm. awkwardness in that. So one of my challenges and one of my encouragements to the guys, this place should be the community hub. Mm -hmm. It should be where we're hanging. And so one of the things that I wanted men to know is that you could be a man and still be a Christ follower. As a matter of fact, that's really the definition of of Mm -hmm. manhood. I think the other thing that men are dealing with as a gender, men are passive by nature. And guys that are leaders in corporate America come home and totally disengage from their wives and their Mm -hmm. children, from their families. And so that's uh, another issue. I think that addiction of all kinds, from pornography to alcohol to drug addiction, men self-medicate. And if things aren't going well, we're looking to escape. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's been a real challenge for men. And the other thing is men feel like they don't measure up. And so that's one of the reasons they don't want to come to church. They'll see you preach and they'll go, well, I could never be like Ron or I could never be like one of the elders. And Mm -hmm. it takes them a while to understand that, well, wait a second, I don't know anybody that's got it together. And so the excuse, I know you've heard it a million times, when I get my life together, that's when I'm going to start yeah. showing up. And they don't realize that really it's getting our lives together is part of the process. of God. But you got to come across as a person who has it all together, because that's what everyone expects, or you think everyone right. expects in your life. So you almost have to be a loner, a lot of guys think, right. because all heck would break loose yeah. if people knew who I was. I got it all together at work, or so people think I do. Right. And like you said, uh, the passivity at home, I'm exhausted by the time I get home. Right. And so a guy who's married allows his wife then to really take over the leadership of right. the house. Yeah. And so the challenge then is, uh, <clears throat> is understanding, well, wait a second, God's mandate for me is to be the leader. 
Mm-hmm. God's mandate for me is to be the one that's pushing to get everybody to church on Sunday and leading the Bible study and the devotion. And you make a great point. You know, men want to hide who they really are. And as a matter of fact, Brendan Manning, the author, said that men become imposters and they don't want to show people who they really are. And I think the irony of that is there is great freedom in Christ. When I realize that I don't have to be this guy that people are projecting or that I project to myself that, look, here I am. I come in brokenness, and that's what's awesome about our God. He's not looking for perfect Mm -hmm. men. He's looking for men who are broken and who want to live for him. So those are some of the top issues I think that guys deal with. So I heard someone say you're either hiding in God or hiding from God. Right, and you can hide in the church. You you know as well as I do. We see it all the time. And for a huge season of my life, I was hiding from God. The beauty of the church, the beauty of the body of Christ, the beauty of God's people is I don't feel like i got to hide. Back when I wanted to be this tough guy, well, that's when I was really hiding uh, mm-hmm. who my true identity was. And mm-hmm. so and I think one of the other challenges, too, I think that guys, and the reason they're loners is they're very aware of the fact that men want to keep score, whether it's a title, whether it's their income, whether it's the car they drive or the house they live in. We keep score. And so letting go of that is a big challenge as well, because when we come to Christ, we come with nothing. Right. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of these issues over the next couple weeks together, a man and his identity, which is critical, a man and his marriage, a man and his family, a man and his integrity. We're going to look at several temptations that men face, the temptation of lust. We're going to look at the anatomy of affair, a breakdown and affair, and just kind of see what leads you there, what keeps you there, and by God's grace, how you can get out of it. Addictions, pride, anger, and touch. I know a lot of women are listening today as well. I want to encourage each of them to let their husbands, let their boyfriends know that we're doing these messages. Go to the website, uh, ronmore.org, and you can get every broadcast we do. The more you understand about men, the better wife you're going to be. And we're going to be speaking about these issues that impact men and impact women alike. Okay, so the first thing we want to talk about is where we have to start with the life that pleases God, and that's with God. Mm -hmm. A.W. Tozer says, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Mm. And, you know, there are a lot of views out there about God. We have the grandfather view that says God is a sweet old man. He kind of gives out candy to his grandkids, and he's really nice, but he's basically harmless. He's powerless. The frustrated God view that says God is not all powerful. He'd like to help us out, but he just can't. The ogre, Mm -hmm. God is powerful, but not good. Mm -hmm. And so how many guys say, well, if I do that, God's going to strike me with lightning. And then kind of the interested onlooker, the deist view of God. He created everything, like making a clock, and then he just lets it tick and lets it run its course. Now, you grew up in a Muslim home. I did. And so you probably had a different view of God, even than some that I've mentioned. What was your view of God growing up? I think it was more the ogre or the cosmic killjoy, that God was very distant and foreboding, the God of Islam, Allah. For instance, you could never understand God. You cannot know God. There is no intimacy. The Quran says no one can understand him. And so, you know, I really had that perspective of God. And I was very fear-driven because of my perception of God. And so there is a scales mentality to Islam. And if your good outweighed your bad, then you would be accepted in heaven. But even then, you weren't totally sure 
because there is a belief among Turkish believers that God is also whimsical, that Allah bilir, in other words, God only knows. And so your good may outweigh your bad, but in the end, it's still God is a whimsical God. So not only is he distant and foreboding and ogre-like, there is this whimsical nature of the God of Islam. And so there's a real feeling of like, I can't be that guy. For me, it drove me the other way, very far away from God. And so it wasn't until the men that I had met with the Pittsburgh Steelers that I really started to get a better glimpse of who the God that we serve is. So the God that you know about from your Muslim faith is really a God you don't want to know. No. You go to college, right. played football at Indiana State, a football powerhouse. Ow, that hurts. All right. So we're not, so we didn't play OU, so we weren't Boomer Sooner. Yeah, with fighting sycamores. Yeah, we were trees, but we were very aggressive trees. (laughs) So you go to Indiana State, drafted by the Steelers, you come here. Let me ask you this. Did your Muslim faith impact your life at all, or was it just something that culturally you were Muslim, but really it didn't make any impact in who you were? No, it didn't. You know, I, I was a cultural Muslim, and so I really was not thinking about God at all. God was an afterthought in my mind. I think God became real when I was scared, obviously, when I thought I was going to get in trouble, when I thought I was going to flunk out of college. God was someone that I went to when I needed something, kind of the genie in a bottle God. But mostly I was running from God. I was living for myself. I wanted the channel changer. I didn't want anybody to to control my life. And so I was living a very self-destructive life. Didn't understand it, didn't know Mm -hmm. it. But I was drinking heavy. I was doing drugs. And I was looking for my identity. And the Turkish culture is an honor-shame culture. It's not a right-wrong culture or truth-lie culture. It's an honor-shame culture. And it was very fear-driven. Bring honor, bring honor, bring honor to your family. The worst thing you could do is to bring shame onto your family. And all the men that I knew, my father, my uncles, his brothers, and my mother's brothers, they were all tough guys. Mm -hmm. And growing up in Chicago as an immigrant, as a foreigner, my desire was to be a tough guy. And so my identity was the tough guy. It was the wild guy. And I thought Christians were weird. And I thought they were weak. And I thought they were goofy. And I wanted nothing to do with Christians. And I always laugh because God has an unbelievable sense of humor. And now I'm pastoring men. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was. Uh, it really didn't have an effect on me. So you come to the Steelers, and it's really the guys who are with the Steelers who begin challenging you about your view of God, challenging you about a relationship with God. It's interesting, isn't it? What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and it's normally through other people that we get our view of God. And so talk about you walk into the Steelers, again, you've arrived, and yet something's missing down deep inside, and now you're talking to guys who have the answer. Well, when you live the way I did, You get tired of it. I heard Franklin Graham say this in his autobiography. He got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I didn't realize that that's what I was going through. But now looking back, in retrospect, I was that way because I was thinking, why am I not happy drinking anymore? Why am I not happy doing drugs anymore? Why do I feel that there is something missing? And read a bunch of quotes from Blaise Pascal, and he says that there's a God-shaped void Mm -hmm. in the heart of every man, woman, and child. And I I remember the first time I heard that quote, I went, yeah, and he said, and that God-shaped void can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ. So when I came to the Pittsburgh Steelers, it was easy to kind of think that 
I have arrived. I'm in the NFL. This is my lifelong dream. But the reality of it was I was just feeling this uneasiness, this, or actually the better word is unsettledness. And when I met Mike Webster, who was a Hall of Fame center, John Cole, who was a great offensive tackle, Donnie Schell, safety of the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was the human torpedo, John Stallworth, Hall of Famer, these guys all had a love for Christ. They had a love for each other, and they loved me, which was really interesting to me. And when I looked at their lives, they had a sense of purpose, a sense of understanding who they were, no problem with fulfillment. And if you would have asked them what the most important thing in their lives was, they wouldn't say Super Bowls, which they had won four. It wouldn't be Pro Bowls, which they played in many, or money, which they made. But each one of them would tell you that the most important thing in their lives was that they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget, when I first met John Cole, John is a cowboy from Oklahoma. Right yeah. down from, he used to or, stay at the, he used to go to the Perry uh, movie house. <laughs> Perry Theater. Perry Theater. From Orlando, that, Oklahoma. That's right. Mm-hmm. So John was from Oklahoma. He had a farm out here in 84 Lumber, raised cattle and horses, and he castrated bulls. Um, I'm easily <laughs> impressed. I mean, if you castrate bulls, you're a man's man. I'm sorry. All right? you're, that you're, pretty much defines yeah, it right I'm, there, I'm, doesn't I'm it? I'm telling you what, he had chaps and cowboy hats, and, you know, he hunted and fished and rock climbing. But Colby had this gentle spirit, and he was a great offensive tackle, and he had this love for Christ, and he invited me to a Bible study at his house where he cooked the eggs, and he fried the bacon, and he made pancakes and coffee, and he taught the Bible study. And I'm going, oh, this is pretty crazy. And then Donnie Shell was the human torpedo. He would hit anything that moved, and his love for Christ was demonstrated the way he played football. He was wide open. And so these guys, they really lived a life that demanded an explanation. I want to know what it was about them that made them so different, because... They talked about God as if they knew him personally, because they did. They talked about God as if he dwelled within them. Well, he mm-hmm. does. He does. They were trying to coach me up in how to be a better offensive lineman. But the, really the most important thing that they could coach me up in was that Christ hung on a cross for me 2,000 years ago and paid the penalty for my sin. And so that just turned me upside down. Mm-hmm. You know, men's men loved Christ and loved each other and loved me. You know, when you tell that story, I was just thinking, there are a lot of other guys on the Steelers, too. Right. There are a lot of other guys who could have influenced you a completely different way. Right. In a different direction. While God uses people, right. it's always him working in the heart, isn't it? Oh, yeah. He's the one directing you to these guys. He's the one opening your heart for you to hear the message that they have. Talk about that time when you said, Lord, I'm yours. You know... As I was going through this process, I fell in love with the body of Christ before I fell in love with the person of Christ. And I'm a very relational guy, so God used relationships to draw me to him. Mike Webster, we were flying home from a Monday night football game in Oakland against the dreaded Raiders. And it was my first start in the NFL, and I remember I was so nervous. I played against a guy named John Matuzak, and he was like 6'10", 310 pounds. And I actually played pretty well, and I was really feeling good about myself mm-hmm. on the flight. And Mike trapped me in the back of the plane, and he asked me the question that every man, woman, and child has to answer, that if you died today, if this plane went down, where would you spend eternity, and how do you know? 
and he really, really challenged me. And I said, well, you know, we went through the process. I said, well, gee, Webby, I don't know. Uh, if God grades on a curve, I figure I'm okay, going back to my Muslim upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not as bad as those guys over there. And I'm, in my mind, I'm doing the one side of the plane and looking to the other side of the plane. I go, ooh, I'm not like Donnie Shell either. But yeah. then who is? And so uh, I said, you know, I figure I'm okay if God grades on a curve. And he goes, he doesn't. So he started to share the gospel with me that God is a loving and wonderful God, but he's also a holy God. He is a mm-hmm. God of justice. He cannot look upon sin. And he shared the word, Romans 3.23, that says, All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, not everybody but Donnie Shell, Not everybody but Mother Teresa, but all. And then he went on to tell me in Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. And that's not a physical death. That's a spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this is not a very encouraging conversation uh, because I, I know it's all bad news so I, far. I was like, oh, and I was feeling so good about myself tonight. <laughs> but then he shared, but the good news is the gift of God is eternal life, and it is in Christ Jesus. And the more we talked, I started understanding for the first time in my life that when Jesus hung on that cross, he hung there for me. And he hung there to pay the penalty for my sin. You know, I saw the movies, The Greatest Story Ever Told and King of mm-hmm. Kings. And I, as a child, I remember watching those movies. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, I would yell at the TV, tell him you didn't do anything. <laughs> it didn't dawn on me that Christ came to die mm-hmm. on my behalf. And when I understood that, I went, wow, God would do that for me. And it's not a, about me earning my way to God, but that is a, a gift free and clear. And so as that thought started sinking in, and Craig Wolfley, who was my roommate at the time, we roomed together for 10 years on the road in a training Mm -hmm. camp. He was also sharing Jesus with me. He grew up in a Christian home and loved the Lord. And one day we spoke at a football banquet on the way back. He was really sharing his story and the story of his family and godly parents. And he asked me if I wanted to pray to receive Christ. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the drive home, he dropped me off. And I went, no. Well, if that would be too weird, I don't think I can handle that. I said, but you know what? I said, I, I think I just need a little more time. He said, well, don't wait too long. I'd hate for you to die before you had that chance. And I got out of his car, and I was thinking, wow. And, you know, God is a God of detail, and he works mm-hmm. our lives out. He was already tugging on my heart, and I was very interested in end-time prophecies. So I pick up a copy of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and he's talking about Revelation. He's talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about the tribulation. And it was very intriguing to me that, wow, there is an end time. And I was just about to put the book down because it got really, really technical at the end and into some of the Old Testament end time prophecies. And I was about to put it down, but I said, no, finish it out. And at the very end, Lindsey, in the last chapter of his book, offers you the sinner's prayer to admit that you're a sinner, to confess that sin, to invite Jesus into your life and ask for forgiveness and to make him Lord and Savior of your life. And I remember doing that. I was in my room and I was going, okay, I don't know what I was waiting for. Maybe God's voice to say, hey, nice job, touch. (laughs) Um, But didn't hear anything. I remember I was going, okay, is this real? And, and And I remember I went to the locker room the next day and I go up to Wolf and I go, hey, guess what I did last night? He goes, what? I said, I prayed the prayer that you wanted to pray with me. And what I didn't realize was how excited he was, hmm. how excited Colby was, and that was the beginning, February of 1982. That's great. 
Touch, we want to give some people listening an opportunity to pray that prayer in just a second. But I want to make sure they understand exactly what it means right. to trust in Christ. And you've said this. Every one of us is a sinner. Yes, we, are. we cannot save ourselves on our best day, our best effort falls short, all of sin, and falls short of the glory of God. If we were to take a group of people out to Grand Canyon and we were trying to jump across, you might jump further than me, right. I might jump further than you, but neither of us are going to be able to jump across a canyon. It's just too wide. We can't do it. And we can't have a relationship with God on our own. We can't jump the great gap between us and the living God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And you said it well. When the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of a physical death. We're all going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. A spiritual death and an eternal death. And death is a separation from God. We're separated from our body at death. We're separated from God for eternity if we don't trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was very clear that that is a real place called hell, right. separated from God forever. That's the bad news. But God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. God demonstrated his love to us in this. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I love the passage in 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. You can see that picture. My sins, all of my sins. The ones I've committed, the ones I will commit. Jesus bore my sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. So we can know all those things, right? We can know we're a sinner. We can know that wages of sin is death. We can know that Jesus came. You know, you can watch the movie and and tell Jesus, hey, speak up for yourself and still not have a relationship with God. It all comes when we trust in Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us on the cross. So when he bore our sins in his body on the cross, we're saying, okay, I believe that. I believe you really did that. I believe you bore my sins in your body on the cross, and I'm trusting in you as the one who paid the penalty for my sin. We talk a lot about saving faith, and there's so many ways people define faith. But saving faith is, I think, of four things. I use the word can't, spelled with the K. The K is knowledge. You can have the Bible memorized from cover to cover. You can know all about the fact that Jesus came, that God sent his son. You can have the knowledge. Even the demons have the knowledge, and they're certainly not believers, Scripture says. Agree. You can agree with all those things. Know that God sent his son, and I agree that he died on the cross for my sin. The N of the acronym can't is need. I believe, like you were telling your story, at some point there has to be a need. And that's God working in your heart. You realize, I need Jesus. I can't continue on without him. And then the T is trust. I finally come to the point in my life where I trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. And, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So we want to be clear that Jesus is not a good way to God or one of many ways to God. He is it. Right. So someone would say, well, yeah, that's a little narrow-minded. Yeah, I can't believe there's only one way to God. And I always think about it like this. If you were in a burning building with your child and you're going to die in there, but a fireman breaks through and knocks a hole in the wall, not even a big hole, and says, okay, here's the way out. Follow me. You're not going to tell the fireman. No. That's narrow-minded. That is a little narrow-minded. That's a narrow that hole. the only way? <laughs> I need another way out. And you, you're going to crawl out. Right. And Jesus has done that. 
He has allowed us an escape. He has allowed us a way of salvation. He has allowed us a way to have a relationship with the living God. And again, I want to emphasize for guys, it's not just some fire insurance at the end. Right. It's the life that we can live with him today, the abundant life that he promises, the life that allows us to live with the right priority and not get things out of kilter. To know Jesus is to really live while we're living and to live eternally. You know, it is much richer than anything you could imagine or dream of. And the other life, the life of Pro Bowls and football and stuff pales Mm -hmm. in comparison. Yeah, people think that salvation is the end game, but no, no, it's the beginning of a great adventure with God. And that adventure, when you start, man, yeah, I've never looked back Mm -hmm. and said, gee, that old life, yeah. Yeah. I remember standing with you at a Promise Keepers event at the old Three River Stadium. We were on the ground and it was packed. And you looked around and said, man, this is cooler standing here today than when we were, when I was playing football. Absolutely. Uh, Out of all the games, well, let's see, 14, (laughs) 13 years, out of all the games in that stadium, there was nothing like the moment that we were on the ground looking around and you had 55, 60,000 men singing praises to God. There was nothing like it. I'll remember that for eternity. Mm-hmm. Well, Tunch, for a man or woman listening today, I'm going to ask you to lead them in a prayer. I want to remind this prayer doesn't save them, right. but this is a guide for them to use to make a personal commitment. Right. to Jesus Christ. So lead us in that prayer for salvation. Yeah. Just pray in agreement with me, and we're just going to bow our heads now and, and just say, Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. And Lord, I admit that there is no way that I can be made right with you in my own righteousness, Lord, for your word reminds me that we all fall short of the glory of God. So Lord, I thank you, and I acknowledge that you did die on the cross for me, that when you hung on that cross, you paid the price for my sin and for the sin of all mankind. And so, Lord, I confess that sin. I ask that you forgive me. And Lord, I ask that you come into my life, that you would live in me and that you would make me a new creation, Lord. And Lord, I will follow you the rest of the days of my life. Lord, you are an awesome God, and I just thank you for who you are and what you've done for me and for all those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we would love to help you get started on your journey. Go to our website, ronmore.org, and let us know, and we'll send you some free resources to help you get started in your walk with Christ. We want to thank you again for listening to The Journey. Join us again next time when we talk about a man and his identity.